Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing Chapter 5, The Eightfold Path, the path forward to attaining enlightenment for all human beings. When we talk about developing a life practice, and that is the title of the book that we use to guide our group learning program, Developing a Life Practice, the Path that Leads to Nibbana, what we're talking about there is the Eightfold Path. This is the path to enlightenment that Gautama Buddha shared with us. This is where we truly discover how do we actually attain enlightenment in these teachings and practices that are shared by Gautama Buddha. In fact, all of his teachings connect into the Eightfold Path in one shape, form, or fashion. So understanding the Eightfold Path, this chapter five, is very, very important. It's utterly important to you attaining enlightenment. If there's one teaching that is the most important in all of Gautama Buddha's teachings, it is the Eightfold Path. Without the understanding of this path, one would not be able to attain enlightenment through Gautama Buddha's teachings. So today we're going to be spending time going through the Eightfold Path piece by piece in order to help you understand the teachings and then ultimately practice them because it's through your practice of the teachings that you will discover the truth, acquire wisdom, and actually see the improvement to the condition of the mind and your life. Because remember, in everything that I've always shared is it's very important that you do not believe anything that I share. Don't believe anything that I say. Learn and understand what it is that I'm sharing with you, but then reflect on those teachings implement them in your daily life and see that they're actually true and you can actually improve the condition of the mind and the condition of your life through these teachings. So today I'm going to be sharing these teachings with you as guidance to help you do that intellectual learning where you can start bringing the teachings into the intellectual mind and have an understanding of what these teachings are. As I talk today, I will help you to do some reflection right here, real time in class, so that you can understand this reflection and this important aspect of teaching and learning where you can ultimately learn something and actually reflect on it right in class. And that might spur some questions or some thoughts and things like this. And it may even help you to see that these teachings are in fact truth and wisdom even today through actually your learning. But then ultimately the goal is, is once you've done this intellectual learning and this reflection that you then implement these teachings into practice 
so that you can then gradually train the mind to come to practice these teachings of the Eightfold Path closer and closer and closer. Because what Gautama Buddha is doing with the Eightfold Path is he's kind of providing this ceiling, so to speak, this ceiling of understanding how to practice these teachings. And then he's pointing the way to enlightenment through this path. And it's the practitioners that are gradually learning, gradually learning, reflecting and practicing those teachings. And you're bringing your practice closer and closer to that ceiling. And the closer you get to that ceiling, the more improvements and the more results, the more benefits that you will see through the condition of the mind improving and your life improving. But this is a gradual process of coming up closer and closer to that ceiling. And again, that's one of the reasons why there is no judgment in these practices. Judgment, of course, causes all kinds of problems in our life if we judge others. But everybody's at different parts and different places on this path. And people are coming up closer and closer and closer to that ceiling. So you are on an independent journey of learning and practicing these teachings. And as you do this intellectual learning, this reflection, and you're practicing, you're coming up closer and closer and closer to that ceiling so that you can then see more and more results and more and more benefit. As we go today, if you have any questions at all, feel free for social media on Facebook and YouTube to type those questions or follow-up questions into the comment section. Our moderator, Max, will share that during the class so that you can get answers to your questions. I'll be pausing at different times. And then for the people in our Zoom virtual classroom, you can also type your question into the comment section. And you also have the added feature of raising your hand electronically where you can ask the question directly or any follow-up questions that you have. You're welcome to do that. Or if you put it in the comment section, our moderator, Max, will help get your question answered through that way as well. This Eightfold Path, it's all centered around the natural law of gamma. Gamma, or cause and effect, action and result, essentially the result of our decisions. This is what the natural law of gamma is. This word gamma doesn't really translate to any one word in English. So I use the word gamma, which is the Pali version of the word that you may have heard called karma. Karma is the Sanskrit version of this word. And Pali, which is the original source language of the most complete collection of Gautama Buddha's teachings that we have, is that word gamma. Gamma is cause and effect or action and result, essentially the result of our decisions. By making good, wholesome decisions to practice and have a life practice that is based on good, wholesome teachings and good wisdom, we will then have better and better results. We will have wholesome results. If we do things that are unwholesome, then there will be unwholesome results. So what Gautama Buddha's teachings are doing, particularly in this Eightfold Path, is he's exposing you to the wisdom of this natural law of gamma, this cause and effect or action and result. This natural law exists, and it's something that 
everybody is affected by, whether you realize it or not. It's just like the natural law of gravity. The natural law of gravity, everybody's affected by it, whether you're aware of it or not. We actually experience the natural law of gravity as we were growing up as a child. And we didn't understand this natural law of gravity when we were two years old, three years old, five years old, maybe even eight years old. We, we really didn't quite know about this natural law of gravity. And we had difficult times in life, right? We put our toys certain places and they fell down and they broke, or we tried to stand up and we fell down and hurt ourselves, or we were riding our bike or skateboard or rollerblades or whatever it is, and we fell down and scratched ourselves up. We lost our balance. We had all these complications with this natural law of gravity. Our life wasn't very peaceful and it would cause us problems because we were unaware. We were unawakened. We didn't have the wisdom of this natural law of gravity. Well, over time, we learned more and more about this natural law of gravity through our own experience of observing what's happening and through people teaching us and guiding us and showing us this natural law of gravity. And as we became more aware, more awakened with more wisdom, more enlightened about this natural law of gravity, we now have gotten to the point where as older beings, we are now able to function in society with this natural law of gravity in a very peaceful way that allows us to move about the world and conduct our affairs in very seamless ways, fully understanding this natural law of gravity because we now have the wisdom because we've been awakened to this natural law of gravity. Well, what the Eightfold Path is doing is helping you to see that you've actually been affected by the natural law of gamma your whole life without realizing it and you just haven't had somebody sit down and share with you this natural law of gamma in a way that would help you understand how this natural law has been affecting you and this is one of the reasons why you've had so many struggles in your life this is one of the reasons why you've been finding it hard to create a peaceful existence because the mind is unawakened it doesn't have the wisdom of this natural law. It hasn't been enlightened to understand this natural law in a way that you can actually practice it. So what the Eightfold Path is going to do for you is it's going to lay out eight individual steps that when you understand these teachings deeply and you practice them, your life practice will come up closer and closer and closer to this ceiling to understand this natural law of gamma. And now you can make wise choices in how you conduct your life based on this natural law. The Buddhist teachings don't actually tell you what to do, when to do it, or how to do it. What he's doing is he's exposing to you this natural law of gamma in a way that you can then find the answer to what it is that you choose to do in life. On any given situation that you find yourself in, there's probably 10 million right answers to any given situation. And what right answer you choose at any given time is going to produce certain results. And as you learn these teachings and you awaken to the natural law of gamma through the Eightfold Path, you will then have this wisdom to then be able to make better and better choices about how you practice 
things in life. So as we go through the Eightfold Path, I'm going to be sharing the teachings of the Eightfold Path with you and then help you to see the truth and wisdom in the teachings based on potential past events that you've been involved in and things that you've experienced where you can actually see in real time in a very tangible way that you've been affected by this natural law of gamma your whole life and the people around you are being affected by it as well. But until you learn it, then we just struggle through life. We just struggle and struggle and struggle, finding it very difficult to have personal relationships and professional relationships that would help us in life and allow us to attain this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy where the mind will no longer experience these discontent feelings. Because this eightfold path, what it's doing is it's extinguishing any unwholesome decisions that you would make, any unwholesome gamma production. So by helping you understand the wisdom of this natural law, and then you choosing certain choices in your life, you will then make better and better decisions, which will be more and more wholesome, which will then lead to more and more wholesome results. Because of your understanding of this natural law, you will be able to then conduct your life in a much, much better way than has been happening so far. And you will gradually, slowly improve the condition of the mind, but then you will also gradually improve your life as well because the relationships that you have around you will just get better and better and better. But that's a very gradual process that happens and it all starts with understanding intellectually the Eightfold Path, reflecting on it, and then putting it into practice so that you can see that it is in fact truth and the wisdom that you gain from this path will help you to improve your life. So let's go ahead and look at the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path has eight distinct steps. It goes from right view, the beginning, all the way through to right concentration, eight individual steps. These steps of the Eightfold Path, they aren't supposed to be mastered one by one before you move on to the next one. It's actually a path that you learn in totality. And then as you learn it, you implement the whole thing at one time. But what you're going to find is there's certain times in your life where focusing on one particular step or another might draw some more improvement in your life. But it's important that you understand that you need to be practicing the entire path and gradually move towards getting closer and closer to this ceiling with the Eightfold Path. If you remember the old style equalizers, like sound equalizers, where there's all these switches, these are kind of like eight individual switches or dials that you're turning into the middle and coming closer and closer to the ideal practice of each individual step. But it requires you to learn what each individual step is. So I'm going to be sharing that with you as we go in today's class. The first step to understand is called right view. Right view is something that we actually studied last week on Sunday. Right view is the Four Noble Truths. 
The Four Noble Truths is what establishes right view. Just recalling back to what we did last week on Sunday with the Four Noble Truths is we studied the first noble truth is all unenlightened beings will experience discontentedness. The second noble truth is that we cause our own discontentedness because the mind has this craving, desire, attachment, this longing with a strong eagerness where the mind craves permanence. So the second noble truth is the mind causes its own discontent feelings because it has this longing, this strong eagerness for permanence when everything is impermanent. The third noble truth is that we can eliminate this discontentedness of mind by eliminating the craving desire attachment. Eliminating this longing with a strong eagerness in the mind will eliminate the discontentedness. And then the fourth noble truth is that the way leading to the complete elimination of discontentedness is to practice the Eightfold Path. So in these four statements, the Buddha describes the problem, which is all unenlightened beings will experience discontentedness. He explains the cause of the problem. The cause is the craving desire attachment. That mental longing with the strong eagerness is the cause of why the mind experiences discontent feelings, sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, the whole entire lot of discontent feelings that I always explain. He also explains the elimination of the discontent feelings is to eliminate this mental longing with strong eagerness. Then he explains the entire destruction and eradication of discontent feelings is to practice the Eightfold Path. So in four simple statements, he's giving us the problem, the cause of the problem, the elimination of the problem, and the complete solution to the problem. Essentially, what he's describing in the Four Noble Truths is that as individual practitioners, we are responsible for all the feelings and emotions that are in the mind. And by accepting responsibility, accepting accountability for those feelings and emotions, then we're not blaming others for the discontent feelings that are experienced in the mind. We accept responsibility for those discontent feelings. And by accepting responsibility for those feelings, we then understand that we have the ability to eliminate them. Because if it's everyone else that is causing these discontent feelings, then it's everyone else's problem. And there's 7.5 billion people in the world that need to be trained to do things our way. Well, that's unrealistic. That's wrong view. If everyone else is causing the problems and we are perfect, then that's wrong view. What right view is about is accepting responsibility, accepting accountability for the feelings and emotions that we experience in the mind. And then taking that a bit further is also accepting responsibility for the things that happen in our life. If we have a situation where we're trying to improve our life or we're trying to do things or we're, we don't understand something and something bad, so to speak, happens for us, we have to take responsibility for that rather than blaming other people, but accepting responsibility for the things that happen in our life. That is essentially what right view is, is realizing that we are causing this discontent mind 
and we can eliminate it through learning and training the mind. This is part of the subsection of this path called wisdom, right? This eightfold path is broken into three individual subsections, which are wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. So by having right view and understanding that intellectually and then moving it into practice, you will have wisdom to understand that you are causing your discontent feelings and you have the ability to eliminate them. And without this wisdom, a practitioner would have no ability to attain enlightenment whatsoever. Right view is utterly important, not just to understand intellectually, but to practice it. So what you should be doing from this point forward is that whenever your mind becomes discontent, is always look within the mind, your own mind, and figure out why. It's going to be some craving, desire, or attachment. It may be even two, three, four craving, desire, attachments, mental longing with a strong eagerness, rather than what you might have done in the past, which is maybe blame others, like you're making me angry because of the way you're speaking, or you're making me angry because you're doing this or you're doing that. Rather than looking external for the source of the discontent feelings or the sadness, the frustration, the anger, if you're going to practice right view, what you will be doing from this point forward is anytime you experience discontentedness, not just the painful feelings of sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, guilt, shame, fear, and all that other stuff, but also the pleasant feelings. When you experience happiness, excitement, elation, look at that. There's some condition that's causing that. There's something that the mind has a mental longing and a strong eagerness for that's causing that. And then likewise, the feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, the boredom, loneliness, shyness, all those displeased, uncomfortable, unsatisfied feelings, there's something that's causing that in your mind. So to establish right view and practice this really, really well will really provide a foundation for the rest of the Eightfold Path by looking inward at the mind, identifying these craving, desires, attachments, then you will be able to see more and more that you are in fact causing all the discontent feelings. And as I've shared with you before, there's no need to feel guilty or shameful or anything like that regarding the fact that you are causing the discontent feelings because all unenlightened beings are experiencing discontentedness and they are all causing their own discontent feelings. So now that you have that wisdom, the goal is to now look at that and over time, as you experience discontent feelings, identify what the craving desire attachments are and then work to eliminate that mental longing and strong eagerness. Because when you identify what the craving desire attachments are, then you can actually work to actively eliminate them. If you didn't know what your craving desire attachments were, then you wouldn't be able to actively eliminate them. So what right view brings to your attention is helping you to see that you're causing all the discontent feelings and then start working to eliminate them through identifying what they are and then actively work to eliminate them. This is right view, the four noble truths. You need to learn it intellectually 
see that it's true through reflection and realizing in recent events when you've been angry or frustrated or happy or excited or bored or lonely, you caused all of that. And now when you reflect on that and see that, yeah, this is indeed truth, you need to move this into practice where as you experience discontentedness from this point forward, you always look inward and try to figure out what are the craving desire attachments, work on eliminating those. And that's where you'll see that the anger will go down to frustration, to irritation, to annoyance, to eventually the same thing will happen and it won't have any effect at all. The mind will be unshakable. It won't be discontent because you've actively eliminated this attachment or this craving or this desire for things to be a certain way. And at this point in time, if you're new to the path, you've probably got many, many, many different cravings and attachments that are in the mind that are potentially causing discontentedness at any given time. So you've got a lot of, to kind of strip away. Sometimes I refer to this path as like stripping away an onion and stripping away these various layers. And what you're stripping away is this craving, desire, attachment. And it's only through understanding right view with that wisdom that you will be able to get to that. So that's right view. And we discussed this last week. The second step is right intention. Right intention, some people refer to this as right thinking or right thought, right? Because what right intention is, is how the mind thinks. What you should practice here is practice non-ill will, harmlessness, where the mind has no interest to harm others. Because this Eightfold Path is based on the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result, essentially the result of our decisions. The way that the natural law of gamma works is anything that we do is going to come back and affect us, right? If we do wholesome things, that's going to come back and affect us. If we do unwholesome things, that's going to come back and affect us. So right here at the beginning of the path in right intention, what the Buddha establishes is that you need to practice harmlessness, non-ill will. By practicing harmlessness where you're not interested in harming this body, this mind, by practicing no harm or harmlessness to your own body and mind, as well as others, then no harm will come to you. And you have to establish this in the mind and ensure that you're practicing it in all the various decisions that you make, that you practice this harmlessness, always practicing to not cause harm to others. And with these two steps, you then have the wisdom to now move in and start learning about the moral conduct. But before we do that, I would just like to pause here and see what questions we have on maybe right view or right intention, the natural law of gamma, or anything that we've been discussing up to this point in time. Hi, David. We have a question from Joy regarding right view. She asks, I'm still struggling with the idea that I can control my mood swings. My mental health struggles are something that I know I have control of with medication. I cannot see how this is caused by me when I have been taught that this is a chemical issue within my brain. I expect that by learning the cravings, desires and attachments, 
I'm supposed to gain control over this? Yes, you will absolutely gain control over this. What people will share is that the brain chemistry is off or the brain is defective and therefore you don't have the ability to think a certain way or speak a certain way or act a certain way, but there is no medication or pill that's going to control what you say. There's no medication that's going to control how you act or how you think. What the medication is doing is it's kind of subduing and suppressing the mind, but it's not allowing you to learn and practice these good, wholesome teachings, which as you learn here today, the more that you learn and practice, you will be able to control the mind. Right now, it might be hard for you to understand because you're just getting started under this path and the mind has been conditioned to make you think that the brain is somehow defective but you're able to speak, you're able to conduct your daily life, you're able to eat, you're able to sustain your life. There's no defect with your brain. You're able to conduct life, your body's healthy, the brain actually ends up controlling the physical body. But the mind itself is not the brain. The brain and the mind are two separate things. What's happening with medication is they're treating the chemicals in the brain but that's not the mind. The mind is completely separate from the brain. There's some amount of connection because when we take medications or we manipulate the brain, it certainly affects the mind. But there's people who have actually been physically brain dead for extended periods of time, but their mind still has consciousness and still has awareness. And when the brain turns back on and comes back to life, they had full consciousness of what was happening when they were so-called brain dead. And this is one of the ways that you know that the brain and the mind are completely separate because people can be physically brain dead, but actually still have awareness of mind and consciousness. So what's happening in the mental health industry, which we'll get to when we get into a later chapter of the book, which is something like chapter 22, I think, is will help you to understand that these chemicals that are being used to treat the brain actually aren't improving the mind. It's only these practices that the Buddha is sharing with you that I'm aware of that are going to actually improve the condition of the mind. What would be really helpful for you, Joy, for you to see that your moods and your anger or frustration, irritation is actually being caused by you is if you take the last experience that you've had when you were frustrated or angry or irritated and look at where was the mental longing with a strong eagerness and help you to see that the mind is discontent because things haven't been done or didn't transpire the way that you expected or the way that you wanted, okay? You're welcome to schedule a private appointment with me so we can have a private discussion because I think that would be really helpful for me to walk through with you a couple of situations in your recent past where you can see that you were in fact causing all the discontentedness, not just recently, but your entire life. Because this is so utterly important for you to understand and establish 
right view, it would be great if you reached out and scheduled an appointment where you can actually spend some time either by audio or video and I can help you see this. And I have a neat little website where you can schedule an appointment really easily and it comes straight through to me on a calendar. So that's what I would suggest for you. And we can not only talk about right view, but we can also talk about mental illness and medication as well, because I have a lot of experience with that because me myself, I was led to believe that I was mentally ill for 24 years and I took a lot of medications and that stuff never solved the problem whatsoever. But this solved the problem and I can help you understand that more and more. Okay, I can see James's hand is up. So let's go to James next. Okay, James, over to you. Hi, I just wanted to ask a clarifying question. So um, with the right intention, that's essentially um, perceiving the love, comma, and having essentially the commitment in one's mind to act on that and the moral conduct aspect of it, such as speech, action, the livelihood, essentially spell out essentially how to do that. So, uh, Were you saying loving kindness there, to practice loving kindness? Um, Essentially, like um, right intention is about it's about understanding harmlessness and the law of karma, while the moral conduct aspect of the path is essentially spelling out how to do that in action, essentially. Yes, through our speech, our actions and livelihood. Exactly. So right intention is kind of setting the intention that I have no interest in harming other beings which includes myself, you know, not, not harming yourself, because as you'll see through right action and some of these others, we can actually cause harm to ourselves as well. But this harmlessness practice of right intention, which is harmlessness, is based on this natural law of gamma that by causing harm to others, harm comes back to us. And we start seeing that more and more clearly when we get into right speech, right intention, and right livelihood, that by not practicing right speech, right action, and right livelihood, we are causing harm to others, and therefore harm comes to us. And we can actually cause harm to our own body and mind as well through things like intoxicants and things like that. So right intention is setting the intention or the mindset, having the mindset that I have no interest to harm anything whatsoever. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. I have a follow-up, David. There's a quote here from the book, which is uh, a teaching of Ghost from Buddha. He says, and what, monks, is right intention, the intention of renunciation, the intention of non-will, and the intention of harmlessness? What does he mean by renunciation here? Renunciation is to give things up, to let things go, right? So to become a bhikkhu or a ordained practitioner, they're giving up a lot of things in their life. You know, they're giving up their home life, their job, their family, these kind of things. And that just helps to kind of create a discipline in which to inhibit or further reduce the potential for craving desire attachment. You know, if you don't have a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife that you're in an active relationship with, then there's less likelihood that the mind's going to have craving desire attachment in relationships. If you don't have a job, you're less likely to have craving desire attachment. If you don't have a house, you're less likely to have craving desire attachment for that house. So what the ordained path does is it knocks down the potential for a lot of these craving desire attachments, providing this real strict discipline that people choose to step forward and actually practice in that way. 
But in the household life, renunciation or letting things go is to not hold things so tightly, right? So not considering it like my son, my wife, my house, my car, my clothes, and being able to let things go. Okay, thank you. So is it right to see right intention as also the practice of harmlessness, but also the intention to eliminate craving or reduce the tendency for cravings arise? Sure. Yeah, that's another way to, to look at it. We have a question from Judith. She says, hello, thank you. I have a question. How can we discern when something is a craving and something is more torture, like solitary confinement in a prison is considered torture? Is isolation torture or a craving for social contact or lack of proper food? When is it a craving or torture? So. You know, this is getting into kind of like a, an individual decision of the people who are administering the, the isolation, right? If I went to jail, going to jail is my gamma. That's the result of my decisions. If I murder somebody, if I steal a car, if I sell drugs, those things are going to lead to my incarceration. And then once I'm incarcerated, if I'm doing bad things and it leads to isolation because I can't even be part of the population of the general inmates in a prison, then if I'm isolated, that's also because of my gamma from the decisions that I make to not get along and peacefully coexist with the general population. So being in isolation is all my doing because it, the cause and effect or action and result being on the street, murder, stealing, doing bad things in the public led to my confinement. Then once I was confined, I didn't get along with the general population, which led to my further isolation. And then that isolation is meant for people to take a step back, a time out and think about what they're doing and change their behavior because there's literally nothing that anybody can do to change another person, right? Society can confine people in jail or isolate them once they're in jail, but nobody can force that person to change their ways to make better decisions. That's why this entire path is based on an independent journey. Individuals choosing to learn, choosing to practice, and choosing to improve their life practice. So once somebody's in jail, if they're isolated, and they still have that craving, desire, attachment to be with others, then, yeah, their mind's going to be very discontent. You know, whether that's torture or not is for other people to decide. You know, that's kind of like social structure, social norms, and those kind of things. What the Buddhist teachings bring to our awareness is what is causing the mind to be discontent. And in the example that you're giving, if someone is isolated, due to their own actions and their mind becomes very discontent that's because their mind still has craving desire attachment to be with others but now they're isolated that's that mental longing with a strong eagerness and as long as that mental longing with a strong eagerness is there that being is going to continue to experience discontentedness but they're causing it themselves their decisions is what led to that isolation right and that's why they're discontent in that situation thanks david we have no more questions at this time 
Okay, so let's move into the three steps that are categorized as moral conduct. Okay, this is how we conduct ourselves on a day-to-day -day basis. The third step of the Eightfold Path is what we call right speech. This is how we speak, because when we speak, we can actually cause harm. And by causing harm in relationships, that harm comes back to us. If we speak in a way that's hostile or aggressive or impolite, unfriendly, unkind, disrespectful to our friends, to our family, to our coworkers, to our neighbors, to people around us, people's minds are going to be conditioned that this is a very hostile, aggressive, unkind, unpolite person, and therefore that's the way people are going to speak back to you. This is how the natural law of gamma works, is by you putting out unkind, unfriendly, impolite, disrespectful speech, that is what's going to come back to you. So by you causing harm to others, others are going to feel freely comfortable to speak to you that way as well. Now, whether they're right or wrong to do that is a whole nother discussion, but the fact is that it's going to happen because people who are very polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, they're not going to be interested to be around somebody who's disrespectful. Those people are going to choose to be around other people. The only people that are going to be around someone who speaks unkind, unfriendly, impolite, and disrespectful are other unkind, unfriendly, impolite, and disrespectful people. So that's what's going to come back to this person. And it's only improving your practice of right speech that you're going to see that your personal and professional relationships are going to improve. So what the Buddha provides us here about right speech is he shares with us that by gossiping, by having slander, by having frivolous speech, idle chatter, these kinds of things are going to cause harm. Because if I'm gossiping about people behind their backs, eventually those people who I'm gossiping to, they realize that David's always gossiping and they're going to gossip about me too. What inhibits them from gossiping about me if they're constantly hearing me gossip about them or gossiping about other people, they're going to feel like, go ahead and gossip about David. So people are going to gossip about you if you gossip. That's the natural law of gamma. If you slander people and talk bad publicly about others to try to disparage people in public, then people are going to do the same thing to you. If you have frivolous speech or idle chatter, just kind of like without any purpose, speaking without purpose, then this is also harmful because I'm sure you've been in conversations and been around situations where people just with no real benefit or purpose behind their speech. And your mind was probably like, oh my goodness, like I'm listening to all this frivolous speech or idle chatter and it causes harm. And therefore this person choosing to speak with idle chatter or frivolous speech is going to experience challenges in life in their personal and professional relationships. That's kind of some general guidance, but the real specific teachings around right speech come to what's called the five factors of well-spoken speech. When you learn the five factors of well-spoken speech and you speak in this way, bringing your practice closer and closer to the five factors of well-spoken speech, 
you will observe how you're not causing harm to others in your speech and people will get along much easier with you in your personal professional relationships. You will be able to conduct your life in a much better way. So let's really dive into the five factors of well-spoken speech. The first one is that when we speak, we need to make sure we speak at the right time. Okay, by speaking at the right time, we ensure that the person who we're speaking with or the group of people that we're speaking with, that it's well received, that the dialogue and discussion that we're having is the right time to speak. Now, once again, don't just believe anything that I'm sharing, but reflect on this and put it into practice. You can look back through your life. When you've been in conversations where you've interrupted other people, or when other people interrupted you, it was the wrong time to speak and you didn't like it when people interrupted you. Or if you've interrupted other people and spoken at the wrong time, it didn't go well, right? Or if somebody's mind was really busy and feeling certain way and you kind of rushed in and, and kind of tried to dump a bunch of content into their mind, it wasn't the right time to speak and the conversation may not have resulted in good results. So it's important that we speak at the right time. The second factor of well-spoken speech is that what we say needs to be true. The Buddha talks about this in the five precepts, which plugs into the Eightfold Path. He says that we need to be a truth speaker, one to be relied on, not a deceiver of the world. Essentially, if every time you open your mouth, you're speaking the truth, then people look at you as a dependable, trustworthy person, and they know that whenever you speak, that you're going to speak the truth. The Buddha understood this so well. He understood the natural law of gamma so well that even when he told a joke, he didn't lie. He wouldn't lie even when he told a joke because he needed people to understand that he only speaks the truth. So if we lie, then people get used to us lying and then they don't have confidence in our words and people don't take us seriously. And we'll find it very difficult to have personal professional relationships. And if we lie, we're going to end up having a lot of people lie to us as well. So this is going to cause harm if you lie or talk with deceit, kind of covering the truth and not really divulging the full truth. But by speaking the truth, then you're not causing harm and the mind is not burdened. When we tell lies, then the mind is burdened because it always has to remember these lies and make sure that we get these lies correct as we talk with various people and the mind is burdened, right? Part of these teachings is laying down the burden. And if you always speak the truth, then you never have to worry. You never have to be concerned about whether you're actually telling the truth or not because you just always tell the truth. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, right? So that second factor is very important. The third factor is that what we say, we speak gently. This refers to our word choice as well as our tone in the tempo that we're speaking in. We should always speak gently. And once again, you've been in situations where people have spoken harsh or aggressive or hostile and you didn't like it. 
and it made you feel uncomfortable and you didn't want to be around that person and vice versa. If you ever speak that way to others, that's the way they feel as well. Right. So whether you're speaking at the right time or you're speaking the truth, right? When people lie to you, you don't like that and you don't like to be around lies and you don't like to be around people that are speaking aggressively or harshly. So speaking gently will ensure that your personal and professional relationships go well because you're not causing harm. The fourth factor is that when we speak, we should speak beneficially with benefit, with purpose, that the words that you're using, the speech that you're using is benefiting others, not using idle chatter or frivolous speech, but your speech actually is beneficial to others. This is helping to establish what the Thais call barami or the one who people listen to, right? By speaking at the right time, by speaking the truth, by speaking gently, by speaking beneficially, people are going to be more interested in listening to you and understanding what it is that you have to say. And they will heave your advice and your guidance potentially. It doesn't mean they're always going to follow what you say, but you're not causing harm to people. So therefore, people aren't going to be causing harm to you. By speaking with purpose, you're not filling up your speech with a bunch of frivolous words that makes it difficult for the receiver to try to sort out what it is that you're really trying to say. If your mind is really scattered and you start talking with a lot of frivolous speech, that puts a lot of work on the receiver. The receiver has to figure out what is it that this person's really trying to say. So when we put a lot of purpose and effort into ensuring that what we say has benefit and purpose, then we're not burdening our receiver, the listener, with a lot of frivolous speech and idle chatter, and it's very purposeful, well-thought-out speech. So by speaking with benefit and purpose, you're not causing harm to others. The fifth factor, the Buddha says we should speak with a mind of loving kindness. Loving kindness is active goodwill towards other beings without judgment. So by speaking with a mind of loving kindness, active goodwill, towards other beings without judgment, then the mind is producing speech that is not harming others because it's coming from a place of active goodwill without judgment. He goes on to say in the five factors of well-spoken speech that we should speak blamelessly. We shouldn't blame others because you've been in situations where people have blamed you and you may have actually done those things, or maybe you didn't, or even if you just made a mistake, it was just an honest mistake, but somebody comes in and kind of starts blaming you as if you intentionally did something wrong when you know that that wasn't your intention whatsoever, then even though you did in fact make a mistake, just by this person blaming you, it made you feel uncomfortable and that you weren't interested in being around this person and having a relationship. So that's why the Buddha goes on and says we should speak blamelessly. So by speaking in this way, where we're speaking at the right time, what we say is true, what we speak is gentle, it's beneficial, it's with a mind of loving kindness, without blame, we ensure that we're not causing harm to other beings and then there's no harm that comes back to us. 
What you'll notice if you put this into practice, and even before putting it into practice, if you just reflect on these five factors of well-spoken speech, in situations where either you weren't using these five factors or other people weren't using these five factors, the conversation did not go well. So you can look back in your recent past or in the distant past, and you can see even if you got two or three of these factors, but you didn't get the other two, the conversation didn't go well. And remember, this isn't about making you feel guilty or shameful because you were unaware of the teachings at that time. But looking to the past, even though our mind should reside in the present moment, looking to the past can be a good reflection to help you see that these teachings are indeed the truth and the wisdom in these teachings. So if you were in a situation where you maybe spoke at the right time, what you said is true, but you said it hostile, you said it unpurposefully or without a mind of loving kindness, the conversation didn't go well. Or even if you spoke at the right time, what you said is true, maybe you spoke gentle and sweet, maybe it was even beneficial, but there was that little bit of sarcasm in there. It didn't have a mind of loving kindness. It had a little bit of sarcasm, a little bit of ill will was in there. That conversation didn't go well either, right? So even you practice all four factors, the right time, what you say is true, gentle, and you speak beneficially, but you leave out that one factor of loving kindness and you just add a little bit of sarcasm to it, it's not going to go well. So you can look back at your recent past or distant past and see that whenever these five factors aren't being practiced, the conversation doesn't go well. So as you reflect on that, and then you start moving this into practice, if you notice conversations that you're having now aren't going well, step back and reflect on the conversation. Look at these five factors. And if the conversation is not going well, I guarantee you, you're missing one or more of these five factors of well-spoken speech. And that's why the conversation isn't going well. Or conversely, if you finish a conversation and it just goes really, really well and you had very good results, step back from that, reflect on it, and look at how you and the other person were practicing these five factors of well-spoken speech. And that's why the conversation went well. This is how you can confirm for yourself that in fact, these teachings of the five factors of well-spoken speech are indeed what is going to produce good moral conduct and ensure you're not causing harm to others. Therefore, harm's not going to come to you. The fourth step is what we call right action. Right action is our bodily actions that we can actually cause harm through our bodily actions. And if we cause harm through our bodily actions, then harm is going to come to us. Right action, the Buddha brings to our attention that we shouldn't kill other beings, that we should live compassionately, trembling for the welfare of other beings. Because by us killing other beings, it's going to cause harm to them, which is then going to cause harm to us. We can easily see that, whereas if we murder somebody, there's a good potential that we'll either go to jail, perhaps the family will seek us out and attack us or attack our family. But even if we escape law enforcement, you're going to be on the run. You're going to be fearful. 
There may even be some guilt or remorse that happens, even in situations where people have the authority of a government and they go out in war, in warfare, and they kill other beings. Legally, they are killing people in war and legally they're not going to go to jail. But morally, the mind still knows that it's killing and that's wrong. And this is why oftentimes soldiers and military come back with PTSD and other mental concerns because even though they had legitimate authority legally to go kill in this war, morally, they know it's wrong. The mind knows it's wrong in this natural law of gamma, even though people are unaware of this natural law, it still affects the mind through guilt and shame and fear, right? And this is where people develop all kinds of challenges. So in right action, one of the things that the Buddha says is that we should abandon the taking of life, live compassionately, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. I just gave you some examples of how by killing, we cause harm and therefore harm comes back to us. We've got another wonderful example right now because of COVID-19, where this virus has spread all throughout the world and is killing lots and lots of humans, right? The natural law of gamma isn't punishment and rewards. It's when we cause harm, harm comes to us. Well, we know that COVID-19 originated in a market where animals were being actively killed and there was lots of killing of animals and this virus jumped from the animal world into the human world. So by there being killing in the world and killing living beings, not living compassionately, trembling for the welfare of all living beings, this virus had an opportunity to jump into the human world and now the entire world is being affected by it. Not only our health, but the economy, our daily activities, the things that we're involved in, a lot of effect because of this killing of other beings. This is the natural law of gamma. And the world is largely unaware of this natural law of gamma and the fact that we actually caused this COVID-19. Because if animals were out in the wild being animals, and humans weren't in contact with them to kill them, there would have been no chance for this virus to jump into the human world as it has. But because of our choices as human beings, choosing to kill and have these markets of killing, now we are actually being affected by the results of our decisions. And this is why the Buddha included in right action not to kill other beings. We'll go into this more when we talk about the five precepts. He also included in there that we shouldn't steal. By stealing and taking things from other people, that causes harm. People work, they apply effort, they apply energy, they apply resources to acquire certain possessions and things in their life. And if we take that from them, that's going to cause harm to them because now they don't have the resources that they worked to achieve to benefit their life we are actually stealing that from them. And now that's going to cause harm to us, right? We know that. Also, he talked about sexual misconduct here. And we're going to break all of these down when we talk about the five precepts. We're going to break them down in a lot more detail. Sexual misconduct 
is very detailed and very specific in Gautama Buddha's teachings. He shared very clearly what is sexual misconduct. He talks about having sex with minors. He talks about having sex with people that are committed in other relationships. He talks about us having sexual conduct while we're in a committed relationship. He talks about people who are celibate and who are practicing celibacy. If we try to lure those people out of their celibacy, then that's going to cause harm. He talks very clearly and specifically about sexual misconduct and explains what causes harm with our sexual conduct and that we should kind of ensure that we're not causing harm with our sexual conduct. It's important to understand that in his teachings of sexual misconduct, he never talks about same-sex relationships causing harm, right? Because we know that two loving, consenting adults who are in a loyal, faithful relationship committed to each other, whether they're opposite gender or same gender, they're not causing harm to other beings. This life practice is all about harmlessness. So if two loving, consenting adults happen to be male or happen to be female, and they're in a relationship together having sex, how is that causing harm to anyone else? It's not. And that's why there's nothing immoral or wrong or unwholesome about that. Love is love. So 2,500 years ago, this fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha understood that. Now today, we're just starting to catch up to that in our society, realizing that love is love and two consenting adults, no matter what their gender, if they would like to have a sexual relationship that is loyal, faithful, and committed to each other, they're not causing harm to anyone. So we'll talk about this when we get into the five precepts and I'll explore this more with you. But we need to ensure that our sexual conduct is not causing harm to others. There's also the ingesting of substances that cause heedlessness, right? There are certain substances in the world that if we take them, they are going to cause heedlessness or unalertness, unawareness, inattentiveness, unmindfulness. In order to learn and practice this path to attain enlightenment, what we're doing is purifying the mind. Through purification of the mind, we're improving our concentration, our focus, our memory, and our clarity of thought. We're working on this path to improve and realize these benefits of a improved condition of the mind where we purified the mind. Well, if we are ingesting substances that cause heedlessness, substances that cause unalertness, unattentiveness, unmindfulness, unawareness of mind, then how can the mind be pure? How can the mind function with things like right speech? Because oftentimes when the mind becomes heedless, that's when we start practicing harming others. We don't practice right intention. We don't practice harmlessness. We start not practicing right speech and we start harming people through our speech. So if we ingest substances that cause heedlessness, it's causing harm to our mind and our body. This is why people who get addicted to alcohol or drugs or these other substances oftentimes have many physical complications as well as problems in their life 
because they're causing harm to their own body, to their own mind, and that harm makes their life very difficult. So if we practice right action and we're working on this path to purification of the mind, we wouldn't ingest substances that cause heedlessness. And then I also include here under right action about gambling. If we gamble, then we're using resources that could otherwise be used to sustain our life and help ourselves and help our family for this chance to win more money. And this comes from craving, desire, attachment. The mind thinking that if it just has more money through this game or through this gambling, that somehow that's going to please the mind. But we know that gambling can be highly addictive and it can be destructive to one's mind and to one's life. Through gambling, we actually are creating harm by harming ourselves that we're not using this money for life-sustaining activities that could be beneficial for us and our family. So therefore, by causing harm, it's going to cause the mind harm and it's going to destroy the mind. So if we improve our practice and we practice right action, then we're not going to be causing harm through our actions. And one of the things to keep in mind here, as we talk about right intention, right speech, and right action, is a lot of times we can be practicing right intention. We can have all the right intentions to not cause harm to others, but our speech comes across in a way that is harmful. In other words, our intention and our speech aren't in sync. And likewise, oftentimes, our actions aren't in sync with our intentions and our speech, right? You can have someone that has practicing right intention, which is harmlessness. They can be practicing right speech and speaking very politely, kindly, and respectfully, but their actions are harmful, right? So it's really important that as you progress on this path, that you ensure your intention, speech, and actions are all in sync. And this is oftentimes how people can observe when people are maybe being deceptive in society, or they might imply that you're deceptive. You might have all the right intentions, all the right speech, but if your actions aren't coming through in a wholesome way, then people are going to maybe be reserved in having a personal or professional relationship with you. Likewise, if your intentions are pure and you're having wrong speech, then that can make people feel reserved and having a personal professional relationship with you as well. This is also why people say, if you're interested in kind of knowing how somebody truly feels, you know, look at their actions, right? So sometimes people can have harmful intentions, but they can have really good speech, right? They can be deceptive in their speech, even though their intentions are harmful. But oftentimes it's very challenging to have right action while you still have harmful intentions. So it's important that for you in your practice that you stay focused on maintaining this syncness of your right intentions, right speech, and right actions. And then that moves into right livelihood, which kind of rounds out our moral conduct, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. What right livelihood is, a livelihood is how we choose to sustain our life. What do we do to sustain our life? Are we a doctor, a nurse, a 
garbage collector, a taxi driver, a food server? Are we a retired stay at home with our grandkids and our children? Are we choosing to stay at home with our children and raise our children while another partner is working outside? What is it that we choose to do on a daily basis to sustain our livelihood? And the Buddha provided just five livelihoods that he knew would cause harm in the world. And if we cause harm, that harm is going to come to us. So these five livelihoods are very clear. He says, if we have a trade or business where we're selling weapons or manufacturing weapons, these weapons are meant to cause harm in the world. Therefore, that harm is going to be returned to us, right? Selling guns or knives or manufacturing these things because they're going to cause harm to other beings. They're meant for killing. That's what weapons are used for. Missiles, right? These kind of things. And we know that there's stories of people who have long histories like the Remington family in America who creates weapons. If you talk to people or you have learned about that family, they will tell you about how spirits of the people who have died from their weapons are coming and haunting them. And if you want to get something really interesting to look at, look at the Remington family and how they've had a lot of struggles. Even though there's a lot of wealth there, they've also struggled mentally because of all the challenges of selling weapons in the world. The Buddha also talked about if we have business or trade in living beings, right? Like slavery, human trafficking, like animal trade, right? Essentially, this goes back to COVID-19 and some other things. By having our livelihood, the sustaining of our life connected to the selling and trade of other living beings, slavery, human trafficking, things like this, this is going to cause harm in the world. Therefore, harm is going to come to us. And we can see that very clearly if you look at it. He also said if we have business or trade in meat, because if we sell meat, the flesh of some being, then that means it had to be killed in order for us to be able to sell that meat and trade in meat. So by doing that, it's going to cause harm in the world. And we see that today, that all the killing that is being done through factory farming and things like this, you know, a lot of people are injecting hormones into these animals. These animals are having a lot of struggles and suffering. And then when human beings are eating that flesh, it's causing disease and illness in our bodies. There's lots of research that shows that by eating meat, it actually creates more illness in the human body. By moving to a plant-based diet, you will realize that it will cause more health in the body through that wholesome decision. The other aspect of right livelihood is that a livelihood where there's trade or business in poison, selling poisons, because poisons are meant to kill other beings. And by selling these poisons, it's going to cause harm in the world. So therefore, it's going to cause harm to us. And then the last one he talked about is selling substances that cause heedlessness, selling drugs and intoxicants, substances that cause unalertness, unmindfulness, unawareness of mind. 
by doing that, we know it causes harm in the world and therefore harm is gonna come to us. If I'm on the street corner selling drugs, I'm either going to get robbed, people are gonna steal from me, I might get addicted to the substances myself, I might get murdered, I might get arrested. There's all kinds of things that can happen to us as a result of selling substances that cause heedlessness. So if you're in a livelihood that doesn't involve one of these five, then you're already practicing right livelihood. Okay, so let me stop here and see if there's any questions on moral conduct, which is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Something I see from time to time, David, are reinterpretations of these teachings, any of these steps, particularly in the area of conduct, for the modern era. So this week I came across a blog post which was all about right livelihood reinterpreted for the modern age. My question is, do we need to do that? To what extent are the Buddhist teachings timeless? The Buddhist teachings are timeless because he's taught about the natural laws of existence and the natural laws haven't changed and they won't change for the rest of humanity. So the livelihoods that he taught about, these five livelihoods are the five livelihoods that cause harm in the world. There's no need to modify or change those teachings because it's based on this natural law of gamma, which hasn't changed and won't change. What you'll often see people interpret livelihood as is they will say, for example, if you buy an iPhone and this iPhone has a chip in it that is made from a factory somewhere in the world that employs child labor, right? Human trafficking, almost slavery, paying meager wages. They will say, you can't practice right livelihood because you purchased this iPhone and this iPhone is being manufactured by slave labor, for example. That is a misunderstanding of what right livelihood is. And that's a misunderstanding of what this whole path is about. This whole path is an independent journey. It's based on your choices and your choices alone. Your livelihood and how you sustain your life has nothing to do with other people and other people's decisions. If your enlightenment is based on other people's decisions, then people aren't understanding right view because it comes back to right view. It's all about our own independent journey, our own self-accountability. So this is one of the common things that I see under right livelihood that people will say, it's impossible to practice right livelihood. For example, even if you are a business owner and you hire a firm to do work for you and you didn't even know that they hire slave labor and then now you're purchasing that product to put into your product, you're not practicing right livelihood. But that's not true, okay? If you have awareness of this and you choose to employ that factory that has slave labor and then you put it in, sure, you're making the choice to employ slave labor effectively. But if you have no idea of that, then how could your enlightenment and the harm that you're causing in the world be attached to something that you have no idea about at all? So these teachings are all about an independent journey about your choices, your decisions, not other people's decisions. And these teachings are completely timeless and they don't need to be modified 
what's happened is over 2,500 years of human development, people have misunderstood the teachings or they have been affected by impermanence and people are misunderstanding some of these teachings. And that's one of the things that I do in the book is make sure that whenever I'm sharing any teachings from my own words, that I put the Buddha's words right next to mine. So I put in a real big box, these are the Buddha's words. I usually put that first at the beginning of a chapter, and then I go on to explain it from there. And then wherever what I'm explaining is supported by the Buddha's words, I will put the Buddha's words right in there so that you can see that I'm not interpreting the Buddha's teachings. There's no need to even interpret his teachings because he spoke so clearly, so concisely, so directly. But the challenge is, is that the vast majority of the Buddhist world isn't working from a reliable source of the Buddhist teachings. Depending on where you source your teachings from, there can be a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation. And now what people are studying are not accurate representations of what the Buddha taught. It's only when you have a reliable translation that you can look at that and then you can practice it. And by you practicing it, you can determine whether it's true or not. So the translations that I use are sourced back to a very, very, very reliable source here in Thailand. And then by learning those teachings, reflecting on them, and then practicing them, you can see that the condition of the mind improves by practicing these teachings. So the problem that we have in the world is people have unreliable sources of translations. They're not necessarily realizing that these teachings are about practice rather than belief. There's people that are still believing the teachings through rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. And people aren't understanding that they need to bring these teachings into their life and observe the changes to the mind itself and impermanence has just affected so much in the world over the last 2,500 years. And this book that I share and all the content that I share in classes, podcasts, videos, or what have you, you can take any of those teachings independently verified on your own through your own practice. Because these teachings are based on the natural laws of existence, if what I'm sharing is not truthful, then it would fall apart as soon as you start trying to practice it. It wouldn't improve the condition of the mind and you wouldn't be able to independently verify that it's truth. But when you're learning with me through this book and all the other resources that I share and you're seeing that it is improving the condition of the mind, then you know that's the truth. And that's how the Buddhist teachings are timeless. And the only reason why I was able to get to this is because I went back to a very reliable source and sourced the teachings there, learned those, and then brought them into practice. And I discovered the truth that it did improve the condition of the mind to get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that's permanent. But his teachings are completely timeless and they don't need to be modified by anyone, although they've been highly modified throughout the world through impermanence, through craving through anger through ignorance or unknowing of true reality through the self through the ego right a lot of people started to get a certain level of awareness or awakening and they kind of turned their back on the buddha they kind of learned some of his teachings 
maybe 500 years later or a thousand years later, they learned some of his teachings, got a little bit aware, a little bit awake, and then they kind of start modifying things and start changing things, thinking that they're smarter and more intelligent than the Buddha. But the only reason why their mind even got to some degree of awareness or awakening is because of the Buddhist teachings. So for me, I'm not trying to invent anything here. I'm just describing and sharing the natural laws of existence that are all based on his teachings that are timeless. Got it. Thank you, David. We have a question from Colette. What strategy do you recommend that will help us remember the five factors of well-spoken speech each and every time we speak? You got to study them, study them, study them, and just ingrain them into the mind. And some of them are easier than others, you know, like speaking the truth. You should know when you're speaking the truth and when you're not. We've been taught this, right? These good, wholesome teachings of the Buddha, he explains it really well, right? And when we get into these next three steps of the Eightfold Path, you really see where the Buddhist teachings really excel. But a lot of these teachings, even your primary caregivers, whether they're your parents, your grandparents, adopted parents, whoever was around you, teachers, professors, sports coaches, people have been teaching you certain little aspects of these teachings throughout your entire life. We've been taught not to kill. We've been taught not to steal. We've been taught not to harm others through our sexual conduct. We've been taught not to lie. We've been taught not to take intoxicants and substances that cause heedlessness. We've been taught to speak gentle and kind and polite, but the actual doing it and doing it on a consistent basis is the challenge. So you just have to constantly remind yourself when you're going into a conversation just really study these teachings very closely. If you're going into a big conversation with a boss or something that's really important, really review these very closely. But even when you're having small conversations with your children or your partners or your neighbors, look at practicing these five factors of well-spoken speech. And when the conversation goes well, reflect on that, right? Reflect on how it went well and review these five factors in the mind to kind of reinforce and soak in these five factors. And when conversations don't go well, look at those and identify where either you or the other person wasn't practicing these. And then sometimes if you're observing another person's conversation, not that you're involved in the conversation, not that you're judging the conversation, but just observing it from afar, you can look at other people's conversation and you can observe how when those people are practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech, it goes really well. And when they're not, it doesn't go well. So you can reflect on this and spend time to really soak it in. And it's going to take commitment and dedication for you to do that. So just take your time with it and look at these factors really, really closely in your own practice but you can also look at it in other people's practice, not in a judgmental way, but just as a way to reinforce what the five factors of well-spoken speech are. And when they're used, the conversation goes really, really well. We have a question from Uma. David Sturr, if we have pet birds in a cage, is it also slavery? It's not slavery necessarily, but having animals it's not creating any positive 
things in the world, right? I know that a lot of people in the world, and I have at different times in my life too, had animals and had pets. But these pets are oftentimes brought into our life for selfish reasons, right? We're looking for some benefit. We want companionship. We want some type of thing from this being. And while that's part of what we do in modern society now is a lot of people have domesticated animals, the choice of doing that is really for selfish reasons. We really don't have a true need for animals in our life in terms of pets. It's nice that now we have them and we need to take care of them and we need to see them through their natural life. But ultimately, someone who's practicing these teachings very well or very deeply isn't going to be interested in having pets because it's not benefiting the animal, right? The animals need to be in the animal world and humans need to be in the human world. And having a caged bird isn't allowing the bird to live its life to its fullest and experience whatever life it's going to experience. I know that may be challenging for some of us to hear because we're so attached to our pets, right? We have this mental longing and strong eagerness. Animals provide certain amount of comfort for human beings, and that's what we've come accustomed to. But if we're going to eliminate this selfishness that's in the mind and start living compassionately for all living beings, then we need to get to a point in humanity where we realize that by having animals and kind of trapping them, so to speak, in our homestead, in our household, it's actually causing harm. And this harm is going to be returned to us. And it is being returned to us right now because that's what we're actually doing. But when or if you ever choose to practice in this way is your choice, right? There's no judgment from me whatsoever. I grew up with lots of animals in our household, and that was a really enjoyable thing. But looking back with an understanding of these teachings, I do realize that there was a lot of harm that came with that, right? Our, our house had lots of fleas growing up, and I had lots of bites all over my body. There was a certain smell and odor that was in my clothes that I would go outside and people could smell that. There was ticks and bugs and things like this, lice that were in our home because of our animals. Uh, there was lots of excrement all over our yard and we would step in that. Our animals would sometimes pee or poop inside our home and make our home uncomfortable. So these kind of things, we have to realize that at some point as you learn and practice, you may choose to let go of craving the desire, the attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness to have animals close to us. As human beings, most of us were reborn out of the animal world. This is one of the reasons why we have such an affection for animals. We have a huge fascination with animals because of our past and being a part of the animal world. It's hard to kind of let that go. But in order to really fully practice these teachings deeply, it would be great if more and more humans acknowledge that and saw that. It's not part of your livelihood having an animal in your home, that's not part of right livelihood. But in order to get that animal in your home, you've purchased it from somewhere. You've purchased it from somewhere that is practicing wrong livelihood, right? So by less and less human beings choosing to do that, then those people 
will slowly move on and find other livelihoods that can sustain their life. We have a follow-up from Rhonda. She asks, what about the case of animal rescue? For instance, saving a pit bull from a fight club. Yeah, so the world is going to go through this transition, right, where we haven't been practicing these teachings very closely in the world. This is the reason why we experience so much problems in the world. We've got murders and rapes and terrorism and wars and fighting and hostility, aggressiveness, all kinds of people being diagnosed with mental illnesses when in fact they could learn these teachings and improve the condition of the mind and and not need to take those medications. We've got all kinds of problems throughout the world right now. And as these teachings make their way into the world more and more, over multiple generations, we will see that the gamma, the result of our decisions, will gradually improve where the world will become more and more peaceful, more and more calm, more serene, more content, essentially creating heaven on earth. But the world is kind of going to go through a transition over multiple generations as these teachings make their way into the world more and more. So we can't just kill all the household pets that we have in order to get rid of that because that would be a lot of harm as well. So where shelters and no-kill shelters come in is there's kind of like an opportunity for people to help and rescue animals that are being fought or people are practicing wrong livelihood. You know, those animals are being rescued, put into shelters, and now people can bring them into their home in order to keep them safe and comfortable as the world progresses. This is one of the things that the Thais do here with elephants. At one point in time in the past, elephants were used for farming, they were used in wars, they were used for a lot of different utilitarian purposes. Well, nowadays in modern society, there is no real purpose for an elephant in terms of a utility purpose, but elephants still exist. So they have elephant sanctuaries here where elephants are kind of being taken care of and cared for for their natural life. So that's essentially to me the same thing as a rescue. It's kind of like a sanctuary for all of these past decisions that we've made throughout humanity that we have gotten to this low point in humanity. And now each individual, as we decide to learn and practice these teachings and clean up our own practice, we then need to clean up society as well and clean up all these past decisions that we've made. And that's what these animal shelters and rescues are kind of helping to facilitate. But it's going to take many generations for the entire world to attain enlightenment. But those shelters themselves, they're not practicing wrong livelihood because the sole purpose is for them to solve a problem of people practicing wrong livelihood, they're trying to solve that problem. Their main purpose, their main objective, their main goal at a shelter is not to sell and profit from animals, right? They're trying to solve the problem of other people who have decided to do that. If it wasn't for people practicing wrong livelihood, then there would be no shelters. If there weren't people breeding animals extensively, making lots of money and profit from that, putting them into the world, there would be no 
shelters. So these shelters, their goals and objectives are to solve a problem of right livelihood as the world transitions from practicing wrong livelihood into more and more in line with practicing these teachings of right livelihood, among all the others. So Joy has a similar question. She asks, what if we adopted them or rescued them? She says, my dogs are adopted. My cats were dying, being rejected by their mother at a week old. I hand raised them from 10 days on. Surely these aren't wrong actions. I do understand that I have an attachment to my animals. They might be my biggest attachments, in fact. Yeah, so this is an act of loving kindness and compassion, right? Loving kindness is active goodwill towards all beings without judgment. Compassion is the concern for the misfortune of other beings. So by practicing that way and you choosing to adopt these animals and care for them for the rest of their natural life, then that's a practice of loving kindness and compassion. However, over time, the goal would be that less and less of these animals are being produced. And usually these shelters, what they will typically do is they will perform surgeries prior to adoption where the animals will no longer be able to produce more beings. And this is part of the conditions of adoption in a lot of these shelters. So what you're doing is very compassionate, very loving, very kind thing. You haven't done anything wrong in that situation. You're part of the solution, so to speak. And it's important to understand where we are in human history, right? And that we are going through this evolution of humanity as we move from all these wrong practices that we've been doing to now clean things up. And it's through all these individual decisions that we make that is going to make that better and better and improve our society, improve civilization, improve humanity to create this more heaven on earth. Joy also has a question about right livelihood. She asks, is a crew member at a restaurant like McDonald's or similar living a wrong livelihood? For me, if I was in the situation, I wouldn't practice at this point in my life a livelihood where I am selling meat, right? I have in the past, right? I've worked at restaurants that sold meat and I provided those services. But at this point in the way that I choose to practice, I wouldn't work at a place like McDonald's or others that are selling meat. But again, the world is in transition, right? There's lots of meat eaters in the world. And something that Max and I were talking about not long ago is Max was really wise and said, you know, at some point in the future, be it a thousand years, two thousand years, three thousand years, whatever, those humans are going to probably look back on this time in history and think about this wasn't Max words. These are my words and think about maybe how barbaric or how destructive we were during our lifetime that we were actually killing other beings and eating them for food, right? Because where the world is headed towards is the world is headed towards a plant-based diet. I think about 6% of the world at this point is eating a strictly plant-based diet, and that's a very small amount. But that's where the world is headed towards because we're realizing 
the harm that we're causing in the world is causing harm to our body. Even if people aren't associating it with the natural law of gamma and the Buddhist teachings, the Buddha was fully awake as the perfectly enlightened Buddha. So 2,500 years ago, he foresaw all the problems that we're encountering right now. He didn't tell us what those problems were, but he told us what the teachings are. But one of the interesting thing is, is that now that we're 2,500 years after his teachings, we can see the harms that it incurred based on 2,500 years of not practicing these teachings. So places like McDonald's and others that are selling meat, there's going to be this slow process of the world cleaning itself up the more and more that these teachings spread into the world. And it's going to take many generations to do that. But that's essentially where the world's heading. And I agreed with Max, and I don't remember his exact words, but I think that thousands of years from now, when people look back on this time in history and prior to now, that we will probably be looked at as pretty barbaric for having eaten cows and pigs and chickens and things like this. Because by that time, people will be so into plant-based food that we will be looked at as like, wow, how could they have done that? And probably those beings won't be judging us at all. You know, they'll just kind of understand, well, that was their unknowing of true reality. We didn't realize as a humanity and a society that the harms that we were causing. But the point is, is that now that you do understand these harms, and we're going to get into them more and more as we progress in the program, you get to make the choice of when or if you decide to change your practice. Right. And that's why there's no judgment from me is that you've got to decide, you know, is this practice of eating animals or selling meat in certain occupations? Is that something that you plan to stick with? And if it is, then, okay, that's fine. There's no judgment. I still teach you. I still share all the other teachings with you. But if at some point you do decide to modify the way you make decisions in the world, then that's your choice and you will have the resulting benefits of having done so and you will see that for yourself. I remember when I used to cook in restaurants and I cooked meat, the smell getting into the body, you know, the burns on my skin and things like this from cooking the meat and animals. I remember when I used to eat meat and my family, my wife and my son still do eat meat. When I used to eat meat, it affected my body. I used to have a lot of problems in my stomach and bacteria, food poisoning, so to speak. But since I've moved to a plant-based diet, I don't experience that at all. There's so much health. I never get sick in the body or the stomach anymore since moving to a plant-based diet. And this is because of the decision to no longer eat meat. So we all have to make these choices for ourselves when and if the appropriate time comes. What the Buddhist teachings are bringing to your awareness is these things cause harm, right? The Buddha's pointing the way. He's saying, here's the way to enlightenment. When or if or how you choose to practice that, it's totally a personal choice. But by doing so, you will see the results and the benefits for yourself. We have a follow-up from Joy. She asks, so should I be concerned about accepting rent from my son who works at McDonald's? That's completely different. You're at that point practicing right livelihood because what you're doing is you're renting a home, right? That's your livelihood is you're renting a home. And what other people choose to do is their practice. You don't judge them. You don't try to 
force them to change. Everybody has to choose what they're going to do in their life. But if you were to deny somebody a place to stay because of the choices they're making in their life about a livelihood or anything else, that would then be discrimination, right? And you wouldn't want to be in that position where you're doing that. So your livelihood of renting your home isn't connected to his livelihood of choosing to sell meat. So you're practicing right livelihood because your livelihood is renting a home for somebody to live in. Thank you, David. We have no more questions on moral conduct. Okay. So let's move into the last three steps, which is the mental discipline. This is the mental training that you need to do in order to move the mind towards enlightenment. So far, we've talked about wisdom and moral conduct going from right view up to right livelihood. And these things are all fairly straightforward. Right view is, is very unique and something that people really, you know, need to kind of wrap their mind around, reflect, kind of put into practice and see that they're true. But right intention, right speech, right action, even right livelihood are fairly straightforward. Now we get into the mental discipline, which I will make straightforward for you and I will explain clearly to help you understand but this is where I feel like the Buddhist teachings really excel and go beyond some of these kind of standard things that we've been taught in our life about not killing, not stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying, no taking in intoxicants, things like this. I feel like this mental discipline, this mental training that he shares is very unique to his teachings and really excels the mind and propels it towards enlightenment in ways that I've never seen in any other teachings. Right effort, the sixth step on the Eightfold Path, actually has four different aspects to it. And if you read the book, you saw these four different aspects. The first one is any unwholesome quality that has not come into the mind that you prevent that unwholesome quality from coming into the mind. An example of that is, you guys have probably never thought about killing another human being. Or if you did, it was out of anger and it was a temporary thing. You prevented that unwholesome quality from entering into the mind. That's right effort. Taking the effort to prevent any unwholesome qualities from entering the mind. The second aspect is any unwholesome qualities that are currently in the mind that you abandon them eliminate them from the mind. So take the right effort to abandon any unwholesome mental qualities that currently exist in the mind. So if you are a selfish person, apply effort to abandon that from the mind. Or if you are a hostile person or an aggressive person, apply right effort to abandon that from the mind, okay? The third aspect of right effort is cultivate any wholesome quality and bring it into the mind. So once again, if you are a selfish person, cultivate generosity and bring that into the mind. Or if you are practicing anger and hostility and ill will, practicing this third aspect of right effort is to bring loving kindness and compassion into the mind. So any wholesome quality that is not yet in the mind, cultivate that and bring that into the mind. 
That's the third aspect of right effort. The fourth aspect is any wholesome qualities that currently exist in the mind, support them, encourage them, and don't allow them to fade. So if you are a generous person, practice that. Don't allow it to fade. If you are already a loving, kind person, practice that, cultivate that, support that, encourage that. Don't allow that to fade. If you have compassion, support that, encourage that. Don't allow that to fade. So essentially, the way that I share this with my eight-year-old son is kick out all the bad stuff from the mind and bring in all the good stuff in the mind, right? That's essentially what right effort is talking about. One of the ways that you can understand right effort as well is you've experienced situations where something has happened in life and you've felt this anger and frustration starting to arise. You may even feel like physical sensation in the body where you feel this anger starting to arise. Well, you make a choice. When you feel that anger and frustration arise, do you allow it to come into your speech and your actions, which is now going to cause harm? Because when you allow that anger or frustration to come into your speech and actions, now it's going to cause harm to other beings. If you apply right effort, when you feel that anger, that frustration, that irritation start to arise, right effort is to cut that off, abandon it, prevent it from arising in the mind and cultivate wholesome qualities in the mind. So that's like in the moment, right? When you're feeling that frustration, irritation, that even annoyance or even that slight little dislike, when you feel that unwholesomeness come into the mind, apply right effort, cut it off and bring in the wholesome qualities. If you're practicing breathing mindfulness meditation in the way that I've taught, where you're cutting off thoughts and you're letting it go, that is a practice of right effort and it's going to help you in the moment. So if you've trained your mind really well in meditation to cut off the thoughts and let them go, when you're in the moment and you're making this transition from the unenlightened mind to the enlightened mind, then when you're in the moment and you feel that anger and frustration arise, you can apply right effort to cut off those thoughts, abandon them, and arise wholesome qualities. The more and more you do this in practice, you'll eventually get to the point where no unwholesome thoughts will arise at all. There's no anger that will arise at all. The closer and closer you get to enlightenment, you will experience that by you applying right effort in so many situations, by you cutting off the anger and the frustration, irritation in so many different situations, that eventually you'll get to the point where that same situation will happen and nothing will arise. Where a couple of days or a couple of weeks ago, you might've got angry at that situation, but by you cutting it off so many times and practicing that mental discipline of applying right effort, eventually it just doesn't even arise. There's no anger that arises whatsoever. And this is the mind moving more and more to the enlightened mental state. So this is right effort. These four aspects of right effort. One is preventing any unwholesome qualities arising in the mind. 
Two is any unwholesome qualities that are currently in the mind, you abandon those. Three, any wholesome qualities that are in the mind, you support those, encourage those, don't allow them to fade. And then any wholesome qualities that have not yet come into the mind, you cultivate them and bring them into the mind. And a real application of right effort is what I was explaining is as you feel that unwholesome qualities arising, cut them off, abandon them, and arise wholesome qualities. Don't allow those unwholesome qualities to come into your speech and actions because that's where you start harming others. You can be quietly frustrated and that's better than being openly frustrated and causing harm through your speech and actions. Because if you're quietly frustrated, now through this mental discipline, you can work on that more and more and more where you get to the point where no longer will frustration arise. But as soon as you allow it to come in speech into actions, that's where it's going to start causing you problems in your personal and professional relationships. So this is right effort. Right mindfulness. Mindfulness is a buzzword today. People use mindfulness to mean a lot of different things. But here's what it means in these teachings. What mindfulness is, is awareness of mind. Having awareness of mind. Because through this path, we are purifying the mind, right? In order to practice right effort, where you're cutting off the unwholesome qualities and bringing in wholesome qualities, you have to have awareness of mind. Without awareness of mind and what's in the mind, how could you ever train it and purify it? So you need to always be practicing awareness of mind. I'm sure you've been in conversations in the past where people have been talking, you've been feeling really happy or excited, or you've been feeling sad or frustrated, and you've said things that you didn't really mean to say. And once it came out of your mouth, you're like, oh, why did I say that? That was so silly of me, right? And that's because you lost awareness of mind. By maintaining awareness of mind, now you can be very intentional in your speech and your actions and apply all these other teachings that we've been talking about today. But without awareness of mind, if you were unaware of your mind, then that means you're going to haphazardly walk through life causing untold amounts of harm through your intentions, your speech, your actions, your livelihood, and everything else. So we need to always have awareness of mind all the time, all your waking hours, always practicing being aware of the mind. As you do that, initially, you might feel like you're kind of like overthinking things. And that kind of happens at the beginning as you start becoming more and more aware of the mind and you start being aware of all the thoughts that are in there, especially if they're pretty dark thoughts. It might be a challenge for you. But as you start transitioning this mind into a more of a pure mind and there's more and more wholesome thoughts there, awareness of mind becomes more pleasant. If your mind's pretty dark, it can be a little bit unpleasant. But you've got to go through that and clean that mind up to get to that wholesome mind. And again, you can kind of overthink things initially. But then eventually you have practiced awareness of mind so much that it doesn't become intrusive, that you just always have presence of mind and awareness of mind. 
But right mindfulness is very, very important for this mental discipline to even be able to apply right effort. You need to have awareness of mind. And in order to apply right speech, you also have to have awareness of mind as well. So all of these other steps are also related to right mindfulness is that without it, you wouldn't be able to really practice these other steps. And that's why this entire path is learned and practiced simultaneously. You can't really master one and then go on to the next one because you're really practicing all of this at one time, deepening it more and more. The eighth step is called right concentration. What right concentration is, is right concentration is meditation. Meditation is the training of the mind. Breathing, mindfulness meditation, and loving kindness meditation. This active, independent, dedicated, purposeful training session of the mind that hopefully that you're working on either once, twice, or three times a day now where you're actively training the mind to eliminate certain qualities or cultivate certain qualities. If you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation, you're eliminating the unwholesome quality of craving, desire, attachment. If you're practicing loving kindness meditation, you're cultivating active goodwill towards all beings without judgment. And this is going to bring the mind more and more mental discipline through training the mind in this way and either eliminating or cultivating various qualities of the mind that you need. Also, by doing meditation and practicing all the rest of these steps, right concentration is a byproduct of having practiced this entire Eightfold Path. So by you practicing right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration through meditation, as you practice this more and more deeply, What's going to happen is the mind's going to move through what we call the four jhanas. A jhana is a meditative state that is very deep in nature, very peaceful, very deep. There may even be a lot of bliss that is associated with the mind moving through these four jhanas. These are meditative states that you experience in meditation, but you also experience it outside of meditation as well where the mind has attained this deeper meditative awareness. It's not enlightenment yet. It's kind of awareness where the mind becomes very aware of things around you. And by practicing this full eightfold path over an extended period of time, the mind will start moving into these jhanas. And these are indications as the mind gets into these levels of awareness or deep meditative states, it's indication that you're on the right path. It's an indication that you're really practicing this path really well and things are moving in the right direction. And as you start experiencing these four jhanas, they're kind of like precursors for the four stages of enlightenment. Once you start hitting these four jhanas and moving into these four jhanas, that's the time to really start focusing on the 10 fetters. Prior to that, you're focused on the Eightfold Path and really understanding the Eightfold Path and really implementing this on a day-to-day basis as deeply as possible, coming up closer and closer to that ceiling that the Buddha is providing. But once you start getting into these 
four jhanas and it will be very apparent to you when you get into these four jhanas. The difference between an unenlightened mind and an unenlightened mind that is experiencing the jhanas is quite different. It's so different that a lot of people actually think they're enlightened when they hit the jhanas. They will misunderstand it as thinking that they are enlightened because there's such a difference in awareness when you get into these jhanas. Once you get into the jhanas, that's the time to now start focusing on the 10 fetters because now it's time to move into the four stages of enlightenment and start eliminating these 10 fetters. Okay, so this is the Eightfold Path. Right view through right concentration. This is the path to enlightenment. This is the mental discipline that we just talked about. You need to get in a habit of applying right effort where you're abandoning unwholesome qualities, cultivating wholesome qualities. Get in the habit of practicing awareness of mind, having presence of mind. Get in the habit of practicing meditation and training the mind for concentration. And if you're doing the chanting that I teach on Wednesdays as well, that's part of that right concentration and developing memorization and this purity of thought, this clarity of thought. And the more that you do this, you will see that through practicing this entire path as a life practice, the mind will experience better and better results as it becomes more focused, more concentrated, deeper memory and clarity of thought. The mind will move closer and closer to this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy, this enlightened mental state. So let's pause here and see if you have any questions on any of the last three steps of mental discipline, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Hi, David. This morning I came across a question in one of the Facebook groups, which seems to come up quite a lot. And I'll paraphrase this, but essentially this woman had just finished reading a book about mindfulness and she says it was very eye-opening, but she still wished she understood more about how to observe her thoughts without judging herself or reacting. She says the book explains a lot, but I still feel a little lost. So any advice along those lines? Sure. So the meditation, right concentration, when we're doing breathing mindfulness meditation, yes, we're eliminating this unwholesome root of craving, desire, attachment, but you're also developing mindfulness because while you're meditating, you're becoming mindfully aware of the thoughts whether they're unwholesome thoughts or wholesome thoughts, they're arising as you're meditating. And whether they're unwholesome or wholesome, I'm sharing with you guys and teaching you what the Buddha taught, which is cut those off or let them go. As you do this and cultivate this practice of right concentration through breathing mindfulness meditation over multiple sessions, you will develop more and more awareness of mind which the Buddha also talked about as singleness of mind or single-mindedness, where the mind can focus on one singular thing at a time. And remember, most of us have been taught to multitask throughout our life. And we've been taught to do many, many things back to back to back to back to back. The mind thinks it's doing three, four, five, six things at a time, but it's actually doing one thing at a time back to back to back to back to back. But the more you practice this entire eightfold path, including right concentration, which is breathing mindfulness meditation, then you will develop this 
mindfulness, this singleness of mind, this single-mindedness or awareness of mind. That's how you do it in meditation. But then you need to carry it with you in daily life. When you're in daily life, if you're in a business meeting or you're in a conversation with somebody, don't allow the mind to daydream. Don't allow the mind to anticipate the future. Don't allow the mind to dwell in the past. If you're on a phone call, if you're in a meeting, if you're watching TV, always have singleness of mind, presence of mind, focused on one singular topic. If you're watching TV and somebody talks to you, handle the conversation. Don't pay attention to the TV. Or if you're eating, just eat. Don't eat and watch TV, right? If you're walking, just focus on walking. If you're talking, focus on talking. If you're eating, focus on eating. If you're having a conversation with somebody, just maintain that singular focus of mind. Initially, it's a bit challenging because your mind's not used to doing that. It doesn't have the mental discipline. The mind is untrained, but you need to slowly get better and better at this where every single situation that you're in, you're mindfully aware, aware of the mind, singleness of mind, and always practicing that. The Buddha even talked about when you're urinating, know that you're urinating. When you're defecating, know that you're defecating. If you're sitting on the toilet with a smartphone now, you're doing two things at one time. And you've probably suffered the consequences of having done so, right? You've either dropped your phone and broke it. You've dropped it in the toilet. Maybe the bodily functions aren't happening as easily and smoothly as they could be if you weren't on this phone. Set the phones aside. Focus on just the urinating and defecating. Or if you're talking, just focus on talking. You've got to train the mind with this mental discipline to just have singleness of mind. At first, you're going to feel like you're compromising. You're going to feel like, gosh, I'm not doing all these things that I used to do. I used to enjoy that. I had so much pleasant feelings and feeling like I was getting all these things done. But in reality, you were making more problems for yourself because you weren't focused on just one thing. You weren't doing those three things well. So therefore, you had to clean up all the problems that you were creating because you weren't practicing right intention, right speech, right action, and all those individual things that you were doing. So therefore, you were making unwholesome decisions and you were causing complications and problems for yourself. By bringing your mind to singular focus and being mindful in every decision that you're making, every conversation, you will actually be more productive because each conversation and each decision you make is going to be based on this wisdom of the Eightfold Path and therefore you're not going to be causing harm to others, so therefore you're going to have better results. But it takes practice and it takes training the mind. And as soon as you try to bring the mind to this singular focus, the singleness of mind, the mind's going to want to run right back to the past or it's going to want to anticipate the future or it's going to want to trick you into thinking that you're doing three, four, five, six things at a time. But you've got to say, no, 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 no. One thing at a time. And if you do that for five minutes, great. That was five minutes more than you were doing it before. Don't feel guilty and beat yourself up and shameful if you lose your mindfulness after five minutes, okay? Just recognize that that's what you did and re-engage. Now get 10 minutes. 
All right, great. Now my mind's wandering for a while in this conversation, but as soon as you realize your mind's wandering, cut it off. And if you've done that in meditation a lot, then when you're in a conversation or a business meeting or something like that, and you cut it off, you should be able to do that because you've trained it in meditation. So don't feel guilty or shameful if you only are able to do it for a few minutes in any given situation. Just be pleased that you were able to do that and then work on expanding it more and more and more and more. Thanks, David. We have a question from Alan Rogerson. He says, the Eightfold Path seems to be internally focused. I see it as requirements that I hold myself to. Where does the development of outwardly focused wholesome qualities like generosity sit in this path? This is going to be part of what we talk about when we talk about the three poisons and the Brahma Viharas, which are going to be later chapters. The three poisons are in chapter eight. The Brahma Viharas are in chapter 13. Those are things that kind of hang on the peripheral of this. So this is the path. This is like the core path. But there's other things that kind of hang off of this that we haven't gotten to. So it's important to learn this core path first, but you're going to be learning in this program about things like generosity, loving kindness, compassion, things like that. You know, you can look at how they plug into this path in terms of other aspects of the path, but they are aspects that you're going to need to practice in order to attain enlightenment. So this isn't the complete teaching. If someone only ever learned and practiced the Eightfold Path only, they wouldn't be able to actually attain enlightenment. You still need the Four Noble Truths. You still need the Five Precepts. You still need to understand craving, anger, and ignorance. You still need more understanding of the natural law of Gamma. You still need the Brahma Viharas. You still need to learn how to eliminate certain fears and emotions and things like this. So this is the core teaching that provides the path, but there's other things as well that we will be sharing in this program to help you. I have a question. What was an enlightened being's practice of right effort look like? To what extent would they need to practice right effort to maintain wholesome states or prevent unwholesome states? The mind of an enlightened being is permanent. It's been permanently trained this way. It just naturally functions that way. An enlightened being no longer has to apply right effort because they've done it so much the mind is permanently purified and wholesome. But you've had to do it so much and so frequently, and you've had to take that effort. That's part of the motivating factor to make this teachings permanent, is that it is a lot of effort to learn all these teachings, apply them in practice, and actually observe the results. But by the time someone attains enlightenment, it's effortless. You don't actually even need right effort because you've already done it so much that the mind's attained this permanent mental state where it no longer has unwholesome qualities arise. It no longer has the need to pull in wholesome qualities because they've already been pulled in and they're already permanent in the mind themselves. But in order to get to that enlightened mental state, they would have had to have learned and practiced this deeply in order to get to that point. But that's where the mind just almost, it's like it exhales as you get closer and closer to enlightenment and life just becomes so fluid and smooth and easy because you've done this so well that now it's just first nature. You don't even need to put thought to it 
because it's just so ingrained in the mind that your practice is just so soaked in that it is your life practice and there's no other way of living for an enlightened being that this is all that they do and they know that this is what led them to the enlightened mental state they would never do anything else their mind is physically incapable of ever experiencing anger their mind is physically incapable of ever be interested to harm another being an enlightened mind is physically incapable of blaming somebody else for something that happens in their life they're physically incapable of practicing a wrong livelihood for example right i could go through all these it's physically incapable of practicing wrong action or causing harm through bodily actions it's physically incapable of stopping to do meditation because the mind knows that as soon as you stop doing meditation then the mind isn't going to feel the same right so it needs to continue to practice this and it does continue to practice it it's just first nature that it's physically impossible for an enlightened mind to do anything else but this but at that point it's so effortless that it doesn't require any effort you're going to feel like you know you're walking up this ramp and you're just dredging through the mud to get this eightfold path going this is the upgrading of the new operating system from the old operating system to the new operating system or if any of you guys have been using the new facebook the first couple of days or first few hours of using the new facebook it was like oh gosh i really kind of like the way things were in the past but then eventually when you get to the new version it's like huh this one is kind of easier i like this one wow it kind of works better but that process of getting up to the new version was a little bit challenging even if it was for just a couple of hours or a couple of days so the same thing here is that you've been this way for 20 years 40 years 60 years functioning in the unenlightened mind experiencing all this discontentedness all these unwholesome relationships and sometimes wholesome relationships too so moving from that unenlightened mind to an enlightened mind it's going to feel like a lot of work and it is but once you get there it's like ah okay now this is all starting to click and make a lot of sense got it thanks david we do have a couple more questions and i know there's another slide to share so perhaps i can suggest we leave those if there's time at the end okay yeah if we have time okay. at the end or if we don't get to them then i will answer them online okay so i share this eightfold path with you guys as i identified in the book but I made something special for this class because I wanted to kind of give you almost like a little cheat sheet, a little easy way to take everything that I just shared, everything that I share in the book and kind of consolidate it into one quick, easy way to really learn and then move into practice of this Eightfold Path. And here it is, okay? It's not a pretty diagram. It's not anything like that. It's just here's the quick and dirty of the Eightfold Path. So for right view, it's the Four Noble Truths. It's accepting responsibility for your own intentions, i.e. your feelings, your speech and your actions. Accountability, having independent accountability and realizing everything that's going on in the mind, everything that's going on in your life is based on your own choices, your own decisions. You have the ability to improve those decisions through wisdom, and by you improving those decisions, it will improve the condition of the mind in your life. 
That's right view in a nutshell. Right intention in a nutshell. Practicing the intention of harmlessness. Always being interested to not harm any other beings, including yourself. Right speech. The five factors of well-spoken speech. We talked about what those are. So practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech. Right action is essentially the five precepts and refraining from gambling. Okay, and we're going to talk about the five precepts in two weeks. Right livelihood are those five livelihoods that I mentioned, abandoning those five wrong livelihoods. Okay, the sixth one, right effort, are those four aspects of right effort, which we went through, right? And if you want to summarize that, kick out the bad stuff, bring in the good stuff, right? Just like I say to my son. Then right mindfulness, awareness of mind. Right concentration, meditation. Okay, so if this helps you, you can take a screenshot of this if you're on your computer or your phone or wherever you're at, because I don't have this anywhere else. This is the only place that I'm sharing this. One of the reasons to come to these online classes is I go beyond what's in the book. So this is kind of like a little cheat sheet of ramping up on the Eightfold Path and really bringing your practice closer and closer to that ceiling that the Buddha is sharing with us that is the Eightfold Path. Questions? Yes, we had a question from Judith regarding rights action. She asks, what about people with brain demyelination who can't eat a diet with no folic acid and they have a chemical intolerance to the supplements? How would this work? What was the step she was asking about? So it was regarding moral conduct and I think specifically right action. Right action. Brain myelinization, they need to eat folic acid. Right. So if the physical body is having health issues that need to be resolved, then somebody should resolve those medical issues in order to put less stress on the mind, right? So if you have a problem with your pancreas or your liver or any bodily function, a human being should address that in order to ensure that the physical body is functioning in a way that they can then practice this Eightfold Path. However, it's important to realize that not everything that we've been taught in the medical community is 100% truth. And I know that's hard for us to understand. I'm not anti-science, right? I'm all about science and evidence and all about the truth. But what I've realized through these teachings and through going through the medical field is that I was diagnosed with several different medical conditions, mental illnesses, but even physical illnesses that were attributed to the mind awakening. I haven't talked about it much, but at one time I was actually diagnosed with muscular sclerosis based on various sensations and numbness and tingling that I was having all throughout my body. And I was asked to start injecting myself with medication on a regular basis. And I declined to do it. And I ultimately ended up moving to Thailand right after that. And when I saw doctors here, they were like, your symptoms aren't nearly what we would consider needing to prescribe this medication. Just see how things go for you now that you're living in Thailand. Well, coming to Thailand, changing the diet, right? Because here in Thailand, we're not on processed foods. You know, it's all wholesome food. 
natural foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, things like this. The life here and practicing amongst people that are practicing the Buddhist teachings, the stress, the environment, all the symptoms of muscular sclerosis that I was being asked to inject myself with medication that's very, very expensive, I don't need it. And all the symptoms left. Same thing with all the mental illnesses that I was diagnosed with. So it's important to whatever you just described, and I didn't uh, listen to all the individual medical things because I'm not a medical doctor, but I know that there's plenty of medical things that are being diagnosed as medical conditions that people are just not understanding because this awakening of the mind, this enlightenment of the mind that was taught by the Buddha 2,500 years ago is not well understood throughout the world. There's a large segment of the population that if you even started talking about enlightenment, they would think that you're wacko, right? They have no clue that there's even something called enlightenment or nibbana or this higher consciousness. And even very educated people in the field of medicine who practice their discipline and practice it very well are, of course, looking to help people through the discipline that they've learned and practiced. However, certain things that those doctors may be aware of and they're attributing certain physical symptoms to are not actually individual illnesses as has been taught because this knowledge has been passed down that there's this illness called muscular sclerosis, for example, and there are certain things that are being pointed to that are saying this is a medical condition that needs to be addressed with medication. But then when someone like me goes out and has different experience through changing diet, through changing mental activities and things like this, and realizes that I don't have muscular sclerosis, this is a misdiagnosis. There's a misunderstanding as part of the discipline because human beings are not perfect. And the wisdom and knowledge that we understand, and even in things like the medical field, that's why that field is constantly evolving and constantly growing because we learn and discover new things about the human body all the time that changes our opinions. So the way that we practiced medicine 100 years ago, 50 years ago, even 20, 10, 5 years ago is constantly changing. This field of medicine is impermanent. It's constantly changing and becoming more and more informed based on our previous understanding that changes as we gain more and more wisdom. So if you're experiencing certain things that you can remedy through medical field and you know that that indeed is in fact a condition that you have and you need to take medicine in order to improve that, then go for it. You should do that and look for the truth that it is indeed improving the condition of the physical body. But understand that there are certain things out there that are being taught that aren't necessarily 100% truth. And it's not because of ill intentions, it's just because of what's been shared with us. We don't have as human beings an understanding of this perfect mind and how the Buddha understood that through being the fully perfectly enlightened Buddha and what it takes to awaken the mind. He understood things that other people didn't understand. So there are certain physical things that you will experience that I talk about in chapter three that people are oftentimes attributing to medical illnesses, which are actually just the mind awakening. 
So I talk a little bit about that in chapter three, and I talk about that in chapter 22 about mental health as well. So just really look at and evaluate things that you're putting into your body and make sure that you know that they are in fact improving the condition of the physical body. And then the next thing I'll say about what you just shared is this eightfold path in this path to enlightenment, it requires a certain level of comprehension, a certain ability to learn intellectually and then reflect on that and apply it in practice. So while we say that all human beings have the ability to attain enlightenment, there needs to be basic functions of intellectual understanding and the ability to learn and apply these teachings. So there are certainly people in the world that have brain defects or certain physical aspects of the body that is going to inhibit them from intellectually learning and attaining enlightenment in this life, during this life. They may still attain it at death, but in terms of the intellectual learning and practicing these teachings, they don't have the physical faculties and facilities to be able to intellectually learn, reflect, and apply these teachings in daily life. And those beings will either attain enlightenment at death in this life, or they will be reborn with the potential to attain enlightenment in some future life. We have a question from Dev Prasad. Sometimes people are hurtful and you see they are suffering due to old hurts, anger, etc. How to help them with their suffering? All you can do is invite them to reach out to a teacher like me to learn the path to enlightenment. There's nothing that you can do to physically help them. The reason why their mind is discontent and they're experiencing that suffering is because their mind is unenlightened. They aren't practicing right view. They aren't practicing right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. They're not practicing all these other teachings. And you can't force them to do that. And you shouldn't attempt to force them to do that. You can't force them to make the decisions to walk this path. All you can do is provide them a book, provide them a resource, and tell them that, hey, this is something that could help you and you should pursue. A lot of times when the compassion and the loving kindness starts coming into the mind, everybody wants to run out and help everybody else. But you have to recognize that you can't. You're not in a position to be able to do that because you haven't even attained enlightenment yourself. How could you help other people attain enlightenment? The best thing you can do and support people and encourage them to reach out to a teacher and somebody that can actually help them. That way you can focus on your practice and you attaining enlightenment. That's where you need to focus your time and effort is on your life practice and your attainment of enlightenment. Thank you, David. We have no more questions this time. Okay. Well, this was a very fruitful discussion. I feel like you guys had lots of really penetrating questions to really dive into this path in a really deep way. So I would like to thank you guys for all your questions and your interest and dedication to learning and practicing this path. As you see, the Buddhist teachings are quite deep, quite concise, quite direct, and quite profound. But if you really spend some time and kind of boil it down, as I've done for you here, you can see that they're also quite simple. Right? To practice harmlessness and not be interested to harm other beings, 
that's pretty simple, right? Some of these teachings, you got to really so you know chew on them a little bit and try to really understand and figure out how to implement them into practice. But it will become easier and easier and easier. Of course, the mountain looks big when you're standing at the bottom of the mountain. But as you start walking up this mountain, the mountain looks smaller and smaller all the time. But the important thing is you need to start walking, right? You're not going to get all the answers that you need prior to walking up this mountain. You're not going to necessarily know what's at the top of the mountain until you get there. But you've got to start walking. If you don't start walking and you don't start learning, reflecting and implementing these teachings, then you're never going to start seeing even the little bit of improvement and results from this path. So start walking, start walking. Yeah, it's a mountain. To attain enlightenment is not easy. That's why the entire world isn't enlightened right now. It's not easy. But by learning and practicing these teachings, you will see that it becomes easier and easier and easier. Just like everything you've ever done in your life, it was never easy to begin with. When we first started to learn to read and write, that wasn't easy. It took a lot of years for us to learn how to read and write. It took a lot of years just for us to learn how to speak. It took a lot of years for us to learn how to walk, how to run. It took a while for us to learn how to drive a car or ride a motorbike. All the things that we do in our life, all the good, wholesome choices we've made, it took time and effort for us to be able to learn how to do that, practice it, make mistakes, make mistakes. We're going to make mistakes when we do something new. But learning through those mistakes allowed us to perfect it, right? The tendency is for some people when they first start walking on this path, maybe it looks too hard. You don't even decide to walk this path. Well, that's not going to end in good results. If you walk this path and it gets tough and you turn around and give up, well, that's not going to end in good results either. It's only when you stay dedicated and committed, having confidence that you are on the right path to this enlightened mind, that through that dedication and commitment, eradicating complacency, that you will continue to learn, reflect, and practice these teachings in a way that will produce results and you will see the benefit to the mind. But you've got to start walking. And as you do, this mountain is going to get easier and easier. It's going to look smaller and smaller as you progress forward in life. But you've got to start walking. So go into this chapter, read it, listen to this talk multiple times. Go back to the talk that I did on the April Path six months ago. Listen to that talk. There's a video in YouTube that's only maybe 20, 30 minutes long where I talk about the Eightfold Path in a more consolidated version. So you've got all these different options. You even got a quiz that you can take and confirm your understanding. I don't look at those scores. Nobody else has access to those scores. It's just for your benefit to confirm your understanding. So use these various resources that I provided for you and remember that you always have the option to reach out and get personal guidance, either through posting in Facebook, through a private chat, or through a audio or video chat that you can schedule with me. So all of these options are available for you to learn. It's just a matter of you taking the time and effort and dedication, eradicating complacency, and stepping forward to start practicing this and seeing that as you do, it's actually easier than you might think. It just looks kind of challenging from the beginning.
So learn and practice. Don't believe what I say about this Eightfold Path. Learn and practice so that you can see the results. On Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation, and we'll probably revisit some of these topics now that you'll have three or four days for things to kind of soak in a bit. We'll probably revisit a little bit of this Eightfold Path, give you guys a chance to ask some more questions, as well as practice loving kindness meditation. Because remember, loving kindness meditation is all about eliminating anger, hatred, and ill will to cultivate this active goodwill for other beings. So in terms of right intention, it's loving kindness meditation that is cultivating harmlessness in the mind. So that's why it's part of this path. So have a really good rest of your Sunday. Enjoy this week. Allow these teachings to soak in. Use some different resources to draw in some more wisdom into the mind and really reflect on these teachings so that you can see that they're truth. So until next time, have a really good day and take care. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment.